We've been studying the Gospel of John. We picked it up again last week. I told you last week that John 13, John chapter 13, is a transitional chapter in the book of John. I called chapters 1 through 12 the book of signs and chapters 13 through 17 the book of glory. In the first 12 chapters of the book, John is concerned with the signs or miracles of Jesus. In these chapters, we see Jesus among the people. He is among the people. And so, for example, the first miracle he does, he's at a wedding. He's in a public place. Uh, we see him at, the, at, a, at a well with a Samaritan woman in a public place. Uh, one might argue the most public thing he did up to this point was the triumphal entry. Uh, in John chapter 12, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the crowds are declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It's a kind of coronation where Israel is, is uh, calling him or commissioning him as their king. Nevertheless, chapters 1 through 12, the book of signs, doesn't end on a high note. As we know, as it turns out, the leader's the leadership of Israel failed to accept that Jesus was their Messiah, even though they called him their king. They failed to accept him as their Messiah. And so John actually makes that very clear in John chapter 12 and verse 37. John 12, 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. And so because the leadership of Israel rejected Jesus, God, we say, we might say, gave them over to their unbelief. That's where John chapter 12 ends, God giving them over to their unbelief. And that's found in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, as John chapter 12 ends, Jesus has been officially rejected by Israel. And so the public ministry of Jesus has come to an end. And as a result, we get into chapter 13, there's a move away from that public ministry and a move towards a more private ministry with his disciples. The farewell discourse, the upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is alone with his disciples. The world is shut out. The setting in these chapters is more intimate. The focus is more narrow than the op opening chapters. In fact, this is the very last time that Jesus will be with his disciples. By the end of this discourse, by the end of this meeting, he will be arrested, and before sundown the next day, he'll be in a tomb. So this is the very last moments of Jesus' life. Now, recall last week we studied the opening scene of chapter 13. It was in that opening scene that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It's odd, it's odd enough to imagine. imagine it's, that is odd to imagine, but it is odd enough to imagine that a, a person of such high class would serve a, a low-class person in any circumstance. But for a man like Jesus to wash the feet of someone is, in fact, superb. It's, it's kind of out of hand, actually. And yet, as we saw, Jesus does that. He washes the feet of his disciples. You remember what he said in chapter 12, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He is their teacher, and he is their Lord. He was the highest of superiors. He was, he was God. 
He was God. John makes that very clear as he opened his gospel. You remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In fact, he says he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. And so this creator God bent low and washed man. Not only washing man, but he washed men's feet, their dirty feet, the lowest part of men, you might say. Last week, we learned two things through this humble service of Jesus. The first thing we learned was that, this is review, that we have been washed. We have been washed. Jesus said in chapter 13, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I argued last week from that passage that Jesus has a, a kind of double meaning in mind there with those words. He's speaking about the foot washing, yes, but he's speaking about more than the foot washing, This comes out in the second half of verse 10 where Jesus says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. You are clean, but not every one of you. Peter and the disciples were clean, save one. There was one who was not clean among them, and that was, of course, Judas Iscariot. He was the one that had not been washed. Judas hadn't experienced that internal washing of salvation, that washing idea, that metaphor is used repeatedly in Scripture when we talk about the act of salvation. Paul, Titus 3.5 says, speaks of salvation, and he says, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so as the Gospel of John so often teaches us, salvation comes to us when we believe, and to believe is to be washed. It's to receive that washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. To be washed is to be cleaned from our sins. Therefore, all believers have been washed. We drew that out from John chapter 13 in the foot washing incident. Jesus' humble example not only teaches us that we have been washed, but also teaches us that we are to wash one another. We are to wash others. This unparalleled act of service by Jesus was an example to be followed. Jesus was modeling something for us, something for his followers, something that his followers are to do. He was laying out a pattern. And following that pattern is more than a mere suggestion. Jesus actually commands us. He uses the language of obligation when it talks about, when he, when he speaks to us about washing one another or caring for one another. That comes to us in John chapter 13, verse 14. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We're obligated to do this. We've been washed, so we have to wash one another. So in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 13, we learn not only that we've been washed, but that we are to wash one another. We're to care for one another. We're to nurture and love and and, uh, serve one another. Now, as verse 17 ends there, there's not a paragraph break in your Bible, but there is a transition in this verse. That is, verses from verse 17 through 18, there's a transition. The the narrative uh, shifts away from the foot-washing scene, and it shifts towards a new scene, uh, the scene of a betrayal. Uh, We learn more about Judas in these verses. 
And so, in fact, the scene of betrayal, it's interesting. You could say this is actually a kind of cleansing as well. It's not a foot washing, but it is a kind of cleansing among the disciples. It's a cleansing of the disciples. And so in verses 18 through 13, Jesus will cleanse or purify the disciples of a betrayer. He has to leave. He can't stay in the room. They wash his feet. Jesus washes his feet. He reveals that there's a betrayer, and then he'll leave. He'll cleanse the disciples, you might say, of a betrayer. So as a group, the disciples needed purification because there was, we might say, a snake in the grass, and that was, of course, Judas, who was a traitor. And so it's through the discovery or the revelation of this betrayer that we're going to learn something about God and something about man this morning, something about God and something about man. We'll start with something about God. What will we learn about God this morning? Well, consider first, God is sovereign over the worst events. God is sovereign over the worst of events. This is the first thing we're going to learn this morning. And I want to show you this. I want to argue this from John chapter 13. But actually, on our way to doing that, I'm going to ask you to go somewhere else in your Bible. If you would, go, go to the book of Colossians. I want to look at a verse in the book of Colossians before we actually unpack this from John 13 as a way of kind of setting this up. Colossians chapter 13, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 1 and... Verses 15 and 16. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Very familiar passage. He, that is Jesus, Paul writes, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, it says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, he says, for him. Take notice of three prepositions. If you don't know what a preposition is, if you forgot English grammar class, remember that's anywhere a bird will fly or a dog will run. That's what a preposition is. That's at least how I remember it. And so Jesus, uh, Paul writes, he says, for by him all things were created. And then he says, all things were created through him and for him. By him, all things were created, and all things were created through him and for him. So then, this verse teaches us that Jesus created everything. Everything was created through him, and all things were created for him. Listen to the way John Piper explained the implications of this verse. He says, quote, everything from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the mountains, to this wind, I might add, as Joel reminded us, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked dictator, everything that exists exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you. And he adds, Piper, the person you have the hardest time liking. And so, out of all of the things that Paul could have specifically mentioned, he doesn't mention these, he, he mentions some unique things that are somewhat more abstract. Notice what he mentions in this verse. Again, out of all the things that, that Paul could have mentioned that Jesus created, he says, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, what in the world are these? What is this that Paul is talking about? Well, whatever they are, they're evil. If you look over at Colossians 2.15, it says, he, that is Jesus, talking about on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so whatever they are, they're evil because Jesus had to die to disarm them. These rulers and authorities, they actually show up again in another passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Don't turn there. Just listen as I read that verse, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, Paul says, the rulers and the authorities, and then he adds, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so with this verse, verse it becomes very clear that the rulers and the authorities are the spiritual forces of evil. They're the evil super, supernatural powers that aim to deceive and to destroy us. That's what these rulers and thrones and dominions are. And so it is these that Colossians 1.16 says were created by God and were created for God. Therefore, if God sovereignly created such evil powers, then it stands to reason that he's sovereign or over the worst of events. In other words, if he's sovereign over the worst evil, well, then he's sovereign over the worst events. Now, if you would turn back over to John chapter 13, if you were there to begin with, or turn there now, John chapter 13, and as I've said, verses 18 through 20, Jesus will teach us that God is sovereign over the worst of events. Look down, verse 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. Now, I know, I know whom I have chosen, but he says the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now notice, first off, Jesus quotes scripture in this verse. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 41 in verse 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting this psalm to prove that the events of his betrayal, his trial and his execution, are not outside of God's control. They're very much in God's control. That's why he says in verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus was not the victim of some un, uh, unsuspecting treachery or some unsuspecting betrayal. Jesus was fully aware that one of his disciples was going to stab him in the back. And how could he know that? Well, as we just read in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, because everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or Judas. All things have been created through him and for him. And in line with his sovereignty... God even goes so far as to foretell what would happen, to make a prophecy about his betrayal. 
And that's what Psalm 41 says there. And if you're interested, actually, there are a number of places in Scripture that predicts that Jesus will be betrayed by someone, by a close confidant. You can write down Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, or Psalm 109, verse 8 is another example, or even Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. In all of these places, and Psalm 41 as well, we have predictions that Jesus would be betrayed by someone. Ultimately, Jesus wants his disciples and wants us to see that he is sovereign over the events that are about to unfold. He's in control of the situation. Therefore, Jesus is not afraid to affirm his supremacy over the most sinister of events. John Piper again, quote, the most spectacular sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world is the brutal murder of Jesus Christ, the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of God. And probably the most despicable act in the process of this murder was the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, end quote. In Psalm 41, David is lamenting the fact that even his closest friends have turned against him. Again, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus sees this kind of treachery in Scripture, and he uses it, he picks it up to explain his own uh, treachery. He quotes it. Of course, we can say more than that because Jesus actually says the Scripture will be fulfilled in what's happening with Jesus. And so while it was, the situation was very real in David's life, David was actually having this experience and making a prophecy about what would happen in the life of Jesus, unknowing that he was doing that. And so... Uh, again, pre- uh, demonstrating that God is sovereign over these events. And so, in David's day and Jesus' day, this idea here that you would eat uh, bread with someone and then be betrayed is uh, of the highest kind of uh, indecency, you might say. To, be- to betray a person you ate with was to turn hospitality on its head. You think about it, Jesus had turned hospitality on its head in the positive by washing the disciples' feet. They would have never expected him to do that. But Judas turns hospitality on its head in the negative by betraying the host of the meal. So to sum up, what we learn in these verses in verses 18 through 20 is that God is sovereign over the worst of events. The disciples couldn't know everything at this point, and Jesus is giving them a key to understanding the events that are about to to unfold. Jesus believes it's to their advantage. It's advantageous that his disciples know that he's sovereign over about what's to transpire. And Jesus wants us us to know that it's advantageous, or he, he knows that it's advantageous for us to know that he is sovereign over whatever transpires in our lives as well. We, of course, have a tendency of segregating God from the worst of events that happen to us. But God wants to comfort us by saying that he's right in the middle of the worst events. He's right in the middle of them. So what does God's sovereignty over the worst of events mean for us today? What does it mean in our lives? Well, first off, it means we should never despair that this evil world is out of God's control. We should never despair that this evil world is out of God's control. As Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
as we always say, all things means all things. Secondly, God's sovereignty over the worst of events doesn't mean he's unjust or unrighteous in the way he governs the world. Psalm 145 and verse 17 says the Lord is righteous in all his ways. God's sovereignty over evil never means he is evil or that he does evil. It never means that. Whenever God seems unjust, remember he's not, just from our perspective, sometimes it seems as if he's unjust. Whenever God seems unjust, Scripture calls us to take up a posture of waiting, to wait and to remember. In other words, in the face of evil, we're called to wait for his future glory and judgment, and we're also called to remember his past acts of goodness. This is the kind of the posture we pick up when it seems like God is doing evil. Therefore, God's sovereignty over the worst of events means we never despair that this world is out of control, and we never yield to the notion that God is unjust. Additionally, and maybe most importantly, we should never doubt that God is totally for us. We should never doubt that God is totally for us. Even if evil were to completely overtake you, even if evil were to take your life or to take the life of a loved one, it's never an expression of his punishment toward you. To put it another way, when evil shows up at your doorstep, when death draws near, it's never a result of God's punishment against you. Romans 8.1, you know that verse. Therefore, is there, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, because Jesus took our condemnation. He is our substitute. Of course, Jesus has to be your substitute for that to be true. And so the question, obviously, is, is Christ your substitute? If he's not, then there is condemnation for you. But if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then no matter what you encounter, no matter what evil might overtake you, it's never God's punishment because there's no condemnation against you. That punishment was taken by your mediator, by your Savior, Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty over the worst of events means we never despair, we never yield, and we never doubt that God is totally for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? I told you earlier that the the revealing or the discovery of the betrayal teaches us something about God and something about man. We've learned something about God, verses 18 through 20. Now in verses 21 through 30, we'll learn something about man. And it's this. We learn that man is sinful under the best circumstances. Man is sinful under the best circumstances. Illustrate this. I don't know if you've heard of the story or heard of a man named Joshua Harris. Maybe you've heard of his story. Joshua is from Oregon. He was raised in a Christian home. He was homeschooled. In fact, his parents were kind of leaders in the homeschooling movement and wrote books about homeschooling. Being raised in a Christian home and being faithfully cared for, he trusted Christ at a very young age. 
Josh sought to make an impact for Christ early in his life and his kind of story he talks about at a very young age, wanting to write books and influence uh, Christians in that way. And he wanted to become a pastor. And so in 1997, he moved from Oregon to Maryland where he became a pastoral intern of a man named C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney is a, is a prominent kind of writer and leader in evangelicalism. Um, Mahaney took Harris under his wing and he uh, discipled him towards pastor, pastoral ministry. And Harris excelled. And finally, at the age of 30, the young age of 30, he became the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church there in Maryland. Josh served in that role from 2004 until 2015, so a pretty good amount of time he served there as a lead pastor in the church. As a pastor, he was successful. He wrote a couple very popular Christian books. Uh, maybe you've heard of I Kissed Dating Goodbye and Dug Down Deep. These are two very, uh, they were at the time, uh, number one best-selling Christian books. Uh, so he's very popular as he was writing and pastoring between 2015 and 2019, something drastically changed in Josh's life. In July of 2019, Harris announced that he and his wife would be separating. Raised red flags for people, what's going on? Well, soon after that, on July 26, 2019, Josh posted the following on his Instagram page, quote, he says, he writes, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. He says, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. The story of Joshua Harris reinforces an important truth, namely, as I've said here in my outline, man is sinful under the best circumstances. Josh had a great upbringing, the greatest of upbringings. He had a tremendous mentor. He had natural abilities. He was a gifted communicator. He was skilled in lots of ways. And yet, he made shipwreck of his faith. We can't speak to all the specific reasons or the specific events that led Joshua away from Christ, but somewhere he made a wrong turn. Somewhere he made a wrong turn. Now, to be clear, I'm not telling you that Joshua lost his salvation, that he was saved and then he wasn't saved. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I don't believe he was ever saved. I believe, rather, that he was deceived. That being said, it's still true that at some point in his life he made a wrong turn. Wherever it was, when he should have believed, he didn't. Whatever action, whatever things that he was doing, he made a wrong turn. And so Joshua's story becomes kind of a parable and a warning for us. You might say, Joshua saw the light. He had so much going for him. He had a great family, a great upbringing, a great community. He had great theology. And yet, he turned tail on the light he stumbled out into the darkness where he was caught by the prince of evil. If Joshua's story is a parable and a warning, then so is the story of Judas. For whatever advantage might be found in our day, Judas had much more. He had the greatest advantage. He spent years with Christ. He was even, as we'll see, our Lord's honored guest. Look down at John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, during a typical Passover meal, several couches would be placed in a U-shape around a table. At the middle point of the U, there was the main couch where three people would recline. The host would sit at the center, as you might guess, and there'd be two guests of honor to the right and to the left of the host. The first guest of honor would sit to the left of the host and the second guest to the right. The text here is not specific. It's not explained entirely to us, but it's clear that the disciple whom Jesus loved was sitting in one of those places. Clearly, he was, again, the disciple who Jesus was, which is a kind of a, a tag for John. John is that disciple. And so John is sitting in one of those places, one of those places of honor. He is an honored guest at this meal. In verse 24, Peter motions or gestures to John to ask Jesus who would betray Jesus. He's asking for a little help here. Who is it that's going to betray? Now, in regards to the seating arrangements, clearly, clearly Peter is not in one of those honored places. If he was, he would have simply asked Jesus himself, but he doesn't. And so in contrast, John was so near to Jesus that all he had to do was lean over and ask Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers in verse 26. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, it seems we can probably put the seating arrangements together. If John was in a place of honor and Peter was not, and Judas was so close that Jesus could give him a piece of bread, well, it is most likely the case that the betrayer was sitting at the very side of Jesus in one of those two places of honor. For everyone in the room except John, this would have been a picture of Jesus' friendship with Judas. The act would have appeared to show favor, but to John and for us, we know that it's a signal of who the betrayer is, that is the passing of the morsel of bread. Tragically, most likely swelling with pride, Judas accepts the morsel. He accepts it. Make no, mix, no, make no mistake about it. This man heard about the betrayal. He heard Jesus' words concerning this prophecy about him being betrayed. But rather than coming clean, Judas further deceives and betrays those in the room by sitting as an honored guest. And by receiving the morsel of bread from the hand of Jesus himself, Judas really claims innocence. That's what he's doing here. His actions are saying to the disciples and everyone that's looking on, I'm not the betrayer. 
And in effect, by doing that, by receiving the morsel, really what he's doing is he's pointing the finger at them and saying, one of you is the betrayer. So he is accusing one of them. And while Judas receives this foot washing, while he receives the morsel of bread, receives the seating of an honored guest from the Lord himself, there's no contrition, there's no shame, there's no feeling of guilt. And so we read in verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, it says, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. As I've said, man is sinful under the best of circumstances. Judas is running headlong into the most devastating providence. Matthew records these words from Jesus. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man, you remember this, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas takes the morsel of bread. He sets on a course of series of actions that will put the Son of God on the cross. Everything was standing ready with the passing of the morsel. The deal was done. The final events of God's plan of redemption will begin to unfold now that Judas leaves. How did our Lord feel about all this? We'll look back up to verse 21. After saying these, these things, Jesus was troubled, it says. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled in his spirit. We see the humanity of our Lord really come forward in this verse. We know something about this word, troubled. We've seen it before in John's gospel. The word troubled carries the idea of being disturbed, being upset, being confused or agitated. It has the kind of word picture of being stirred, of being stirred. John 5, John, the gospel writer, he uses the word of water being stirred. So Jesus is troubled like the stirring of a sea or the movement of a storm. He is experiencing violent emotional anguish, agitation. It says the perfect example Jesus is teaching us how we are to think and feel about man's greatest enemy, about sin, about death, about Satan. He is troubled. So too, it's fascinating that the knowledge of events that Jesus is sovereign and knows all of these events, it doesn't cripple him from his emotional experience. He still is very, his emotion regarding these events. He knows the outcome, but it didn't remove the pain of the journey. He's a man. Jesus had every reason to be stoic, to be resigned in his feelings, but he was not. He was not milk toast. He was moved. He was not bashful. He was bold. Therefore, with full emotion, he says, and there truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And don't miss verse 22. Disciples looked at one another. They looked around, uncertain of whom he spoke. They were uncertain. They didn't know who he was speaking of. There was no clue. This, of course, speaks to the depth of Judas's subterfuge, that is, the depth of his trickery or his deceit. He was good at deceiving them, but it also speaks to the depth of Jesus's care, that he could care for this man and for all of them with such fairness that it would not be obvious. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a group of even three people where someone would be like, well, that's the odd one out. There's 12 men, 
And Jesus perfectly treated all of them with perfect fairness, that none of them would say, oh, I know who the betrayer is. No, nothing like that exists. Even when, Jesus, even when Judas rises and leaves the room, the disciples are unmoved. They still don't even suspect it. As verse 29 says, they just assume Jesus had commissioned him to purchase something for the meal or to give something to the poor. And so in verse 30, Judas is excused to do his work, and John tells us, he says, it was night. That's where our text ends, it was night. Now, I believe when John tells us that it was night, I believe he's giving us more than a time reference here. Judas had shut himself out to the light of the world and secured his place in the darkness. That's what he had done. What would drive a man to such a fate? What led Judas to this point? As I said earlier regarding Joshua Harris, we don't know the specific reasons why he fell away. We don't know the events in his life, all the details of why he deconstructed. We do know something about Judas's life. There are some clues. For instance, John 12, verse 6, you remember this, Judas complained that Mary had wasted money. Do you remember this? That, he had waste, that she had wasted the money by anointing Jesus with such valuable perfume. And John tells us, he said this, that is, Judas said it, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, it says. He was a thief, not having charge over the money bag, or and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In a word, Judas was greedy. He was, he was greedy. Proverbs eleven six says, The righteous of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their own greed. Judas was taken captive by greed. And to be overcome with greed is really to become a thief. That's the result of greed. You steal because you're so greedy. The cancer of his greed spread from the physical to the spiritual. Again, man is sinful under the best circumstances. Judas was one of the 12. He was on the inside. He had, if you think about it, he had been invited to the most unique the, the most elite, special group of people that has ever existed in the history of the world. He was a part of that group. Christ was only here for three years, and Judas was there. He saw those miracles. He heard all those teachings. Only 12 men have ever been in this group. Of course, Ad, Matthias, and Paul. While Jesus was drawing each of these disciples in with the cords of his love cords that would have resulted in each of them giving their life for Jesus. Think about the way that he drew them in. They died for this man. This is the, the loyalty and the trustworthiness that he cultivated among them, that they would give their lives for him. Such love, yet the greediness of Judas shielded him from being drawn in. It was like a shield he held up. He could not accept that love because of his greed. Furthermore, it is evident that Judas was altogether about his own glory. He tried to shame Mary for anointing Jesus. And here in the upper room, he just disguises his guilt. He never comes clean. He accepts the foot washing. He accepts the bread. He accepts the place of honor. Doesn't say anything. Judas was a poser. He was a phony. He was a pretender. 
If the life of Judas teaches us anything, it's that greed is a detestable evil. It is a detestable evil. It's so detestable, it's the kind of evil that works like a magnet to pull other sins or pull other evils in. The jaws of greed are unceasing. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You know this verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That doesn't apply to Judas. I don't know what does. What is a snare? It's a trap. It's a trap that we can't get out of. It's like falling in a hole that you can't escape from. That's what the love of money is. It's what it leads to in our lives. And so Judas was trapped by his greed. His greed led him away from the faith and caused many pangs. Greed in our life will lead us away from the gospel. It sets our trajectory away from God. Consequently, if one of the 12 could fall through the trap door of greed, friend, so can we. We're not above this. We have to guard ourselves against it. And the gospel is the only tool, it's the only tool, tool that can release you from the sin of greed, from the love of money, as Paul said. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, he says, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, which is like the, one of the greatest statements in the Bible, right? And such, the past tense is beautiful there. And such were some of you. We're not that way anymore. But you were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Trusting in Jesus as our substitute, as we said, we serve communion. Trusting in Jesus as our substitute, as our Lord and Savior, is the only way to be washed of the sin of greed. It's the only way to protect against the growth of greed in our hearts. As we move to close here this morning, we're almost done. I told you it's through the discovery of the betrayer that we're going to learn something about God and something about man. This morning, I didn't give you the big idea. I kind of flipped it on you this morning. Uh, if you missed it, our big idea this morning is this. The discovery of the betrayer reveals two revelations about God and man. Two revelations about God and, and man, which, here's your so that, which calls us to trust that God is in control and challenges us to be committed. Two revelations about God and man call us to trust that God is in control and challenges us to be committed. The first revelation was this, God is sovereign over the worst events. The second revelation was this, man is sinful under the best circumstances. It's my hope that as a result of these two revelations, we might trust that God is in control and be challenged in our commitment to him. Knowing that God is sovereign over the worst of events means that God is in complete control over the events in your life. He's in complete control over the events of your life, even the worst of events. 
And knowing that man is sinful under the best circumstances challenges us, challenges me, to evaluate my commitment to Christ, specifically as it relates to Judas, to search out where greed might be growing in my heart. Lord, search my heart. Where am I greedy? Thankfully, the gospel is good news. Thankfully, there is a man, capital M, there is a man who time after time refused to turn towards sin. There's a man who trusted his father through the worst of events and who, far from being sinful under the best of circumstances, remained sinless under the worst of circumstances. A man who did more than to wash or welcome an enemy. A man who died for his enemies. Amen.